We've heard it said a lot over the last three to four months that one of the effects of COVID has been accelerative for tech. Have you found that in your area, which is fintech? Yes, it's true to say that COVID has accelerated digital adoption, which, of course, is powered by technology. It's very hard to gauge, of course, how far this has accelerated digital adoption, which was already well underway. Uh, but you know, people talk of it as adding years of, of a digital adoption in, in a period of less than a year. Is your business model for what you're doing at the moment to work with existing large legacy banks and try and bring them up to speed in the digital world? Because we've heard a lot over years about legacy IT systems. And when that expression comes up in a sort of a negative sense, then it's nearly always the banks that we hear the sort of jokes about that they're still operating software from sort of the mid 80s and things like that. Is, is that your business model really to try and help large existing institutions move forward into the digital world? If you're going to start a business, use your own experience. And my own experience, of course, is working in very large banks all around the world. And I was always intrigued by two questions, really. The first question was, why doesn't technology create transformation in financial services? Why doesn't it make things radically better, as we've seen in other areas of our lives? And secondly, of course, why don't banks work better for their customers? And these were all issues I was grappling with over a 20-year period. And it came to me, really, that the technology hadn't yet reached a point of capability that would allow the transformation of a complex vertical like financial services. And so you know, when I was running Barclays, I was looking for that technology. I couldn't find it out there. It wasn't being delivered by the, the big tech companies, but I believed it could be built. And so we've developed the world's first cloud-native banking platform that is targeted at large banks to allow them to radically modernize their technology estate, which in turn would allow them to deliver much better customer experiences at lower cost and really compete with both the neobanks on the one hand, but also big tech companies on the other. Yeah, I remember when we spoke in the summer, you introduced me to a concept that I'd never thought of before, but it seemed sort of so ingenious. It amazed me that I'd never come across it previously, the thought that people who are in monthly salary jobs, rather than getting a lump of cash at the end on the 30th at the end of each month or midway through the month, you know, it's perfectly easy for the organization for which they work to pay them on a daily basis now. What do you think that, that fintech can do for the less well-off in society? It's well known that it's actually very expensive to live on a low income because everything that you pay for, you tend to pay you know, as you go. And therefore, you know, your mobile phone costs are higher and your electricity bill is higher and all of these sorts of things. And the same is true of financial services. And one of the things about digitization, going back to your earlier question, is as things become digital, it allows you to provide access uh, to the financial system at a much lower price point for um, the less well-off in society. The combination of lower cost to provide because of automation and digital deployment and better handling of data, I think, presents a real opportunity for us to broaden access to financial services. Isn't there a part of the 
banker in you that goes back to the kind of Captain Mannering of looking across the desk to somebody and kind of trying to assess from a human experience point of view whether or not that individual is a good bet or not. I wonder if in that more, you know, more impersonal relationship we tend to have with banks these days, whether something hasn't been lost. Because I remember as a kind of an 18-year-old being introduced, as used to happen, to my father's bank manager at, at Lloyd's, and then they kind of, you know, had a look at me and asked me what I was up to and all the rest of it. Has anything been lost in the personal realm, do you think? Well, of, of course, it's tempting to think back to the sort of Panglossian era of you know, Miss Marple cycling down to the local branch on her bike and bumping into Captain Mannering uh, to do her <laughs> banking. But, of course, that was a, a, an incredibly elitist and quite you know, exclusionary way of delivering financial services because, by default, as you said, you know, if your father didn't have a bank account, mm-hmm. well, how are you going to get one? Uh, and I, I think we've the broadening, the democratization in some ways of financial services and particularly access to credit has broadly been a good thing. Of course, there are always circumstances in which provision of credit, whether it's, it was done face to face or done in an automatic fashion, goes wrong. Um, mostly for individuals, my experience is it goes wrong not because those individuals are you're feckless or irresponsible, but usually because of some change in life circumstances. And my view is that actually the more we can automate things, the more we can communicate in real time, the more we can make decisions in real time, the better system we can build. And as I say, the more widely we'll be able to provide financial services. And that's got to be a good thing. Mm. And Mannering, of course, was a fearful snob, wasn't he? I mean, you know, that was the thing about him. Um, Well, indeed. I mean, I suppose we've got to talk about Brexit. The FT today is referring to this period, probably over the course of this week, as peak uncertainty. COVID has clearly changed a lot. What do you think Brexit is going to change for us here in the UK and specifically for you and your business? We're a service business where, as I said, we're working here in the UK, but also in Australia, obviously not an EU country. I don't think it's going to make much difference to us at all. Other parts of our economy will be much more directly impacted, manufacturing, the automotive sector, agriculture, and so on. The true outcome on Brexit, though, is unknowable. Uh, I think every common sense suggests that a deal is better than no deal by far. But even the nature of the deal and its long-term implications are very hard to fathom. It is literally the second-order consequences that we can't foresee. Uh, But there's no doubt that it will present a set of additional challenges on top of the ones we already face as a result of COVID. So in terms of people then, you know, highly skilled tech people, engineers, who are possibly going to find it more difficult to come from Europe to work for you in the UK, does that not worry you so much because what we've learned in the last nine months is that a virtual organization with people employed on different continents works fine yeah we've hired a hundred people 
since COVID, and the majority of them have not been in London. They've been in Leeds uh, and the sort of northwest, northeast of the country, where we have no office. For businesses like mine, you know, we've actually proved, back to the point about the digital leapfrogging, that it is entirely possible to run a business 100% virtually. Now, obviously, it's not desirable to do that all the time because human beings still work better and more creatively together, but it's possible to foresee a world in the not-too-different future where you know, we're maybe together 30% of the time and the rest of the time is working virtually in my type of business. And therefore, some of the concerns about hiring software engineers and so on are, are, I think, diminished because of the experience of COVID. You must have many friends and colleagues left in the city, you know, at, at Canary Wharf and still in the old city. I mean, what are they feeling at the moment? Because this is an industry from which we've lived. You know, fishing and fisheries are a thousandth of the UK workforce. I mean, how do you feel about UK financial services and the fact that they just seem to have been almost forgotten during this negotiation? My view is, firstly, the city has proved itself to be incredibly resilient over over centuries, and I suspect it will continue to be so. Business people hate uncertainty uh, more than anything else. So I suspect if you gave people a choice between certainty at the end of this year and another 12 months of backwards and forwards on deal, no deal, most would accept certainty and figure out how to make it work. The, again, you know, financial services is an incredibly important part of our economy, but many of the advantages of London remain in any construct you can imagine. So I think the general sentiment among people I talk to is, let's just get on with it because we will find a way to make it work. That's what we do in business. Isn't there a part of you that feels sort of anxious and a sense of foreboding for what lies ahead of us over the next couple of years? Well, you referred at the start of this to the financial crisis. And I, I remember being at a private dinner where a very senior ex-central banker said, I remember when the crisis started, we had to go and look up what a CDO was in Wikipedia. And interestingly, there was a documentary on the television last week about the early response to the crisis, the COVID crisis, where one of the esteemed academics was saying we had to go and look up COVID on Wikipedia. So, you know, the thing about crises is by definition, they have not been experienced before and there is no playbook for it. If you, if you think about the policy actions that were taken at the time of the financial crisis, particularly by central banks in terms of deploying massive amounts of liquidity to the market and quantitative easing. They were undoubtedly the right things to do. And I think time will tell that the, the effectively the, the fiscal stimulus and job preservation that's been provided has been the right thing to do. The, the more interesting question is where do we go from here? Because, of course, the, the real solution to the size of the country's balance sheet is to generate growth. Uh, and that goes back to what I said before. If we can truly do all the things that we've talked about on infrastructure and skilling, then I think 
there's an opportunity for us to you know really create two or three decades of growth in the country which will then go a long way to solving the challenges presented by the debt that's on the balance sheet so there are a set of choices ahead of us which i think could take us down a positive path um and i i choose to be positive about that uh, but you're right you know there are other scenarios which are very very concerning where we have basically kicked the can down the road and, and my children and grandchildren end up paying the price for 50 to 100 years one of the reasons that the current government was elected about a year ago today was the leveling up issue and you are originally from the northwest you're not a you're not a londoner by birth and so that's something that must interest you. And I wonder what you think the chances of there being progress on that front by 2024 are. You know, go around any northern city and you see this fantastic architecture, which was all built off the wealth created through the first industrial revolution. Again, what the digital era has shown, uh, particularly accelerated by COVID, is you know, there's no reason why we can't have an incredibly vibrant northern part of the country. As I said, I've hired 100 people since the start of the crisis. The vast majority of them have been in that part of the country. Uh, there's fantastic talent up there, great universities. Uh, and if we can, as I say, accelerate the move to digital, fix some of the infrastructure issues around transportation and collectivity, we can uh, create, I think, a real kind of rebalancing of the of the country and that's got to be a positive so you know again i'm not claiming that the crisis itself is is in any way a good thing uh, but i am saying that it can be catalytic for a positive way forward if we choose to you know seize the opportunity there was an item on channel 4 news a couple of nights ago where they sent their business and economics reporter out to do a story about people who were on furlough at the moment who had been turned down for mortgage applications. And it kind of made me think that, you know, as a banker, you and your colleagues got it in the neck. I wonder if not offering a substantial mortgage to somebody who's currently on furlough isn't, you know, very good sense. And I wonder if people are really been cushioned for it quite quite rightly and that when furlough finishes as it's supposed to in March things really are going to get pretty stark yes I, I was listening to the radio this morning and thinking you know some of these concepts around the national debt and the deficit are are quite abstract ideas which I think for most people aren't interesting banks of course always have that dual responsibility to support individuals businesses and the economy but not to lend rashly and i do think you know there there, there can be a tendency to think we'll muddle through uh, but next year is likely to be difficult my my own view is that the the covid consequences are likely to go on for another two years or so because although we'll have vaccines we've got to find a way to to inoculate the entire population that's logistically very challenging but it will get gradually better uh, but there's you know you and i are old enough to remember the 80s where there were three million people unemployed 
the workforce is, of course, bigger now, but we're talking about maybe two and a half billion people being unemployed. That's higher levels of unemployment than we've seen in a long time in this country. I do think, however, that you know, we have learned from the, the era of austerity, and it's back to the Keynesian paradox of thrift, that there are times to invest and there are times to be fiscally cautious. And we are in the time when it's the time to invest, both uh, in short-term job creation, but also in some of the longer-term things we've discussed. 